From Matthew chapter 6, 1 to 18, hear the word of the Lord. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not, uh, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I never experienced this firsthand, but I heard from someone else about a theological professor at a seminary. He would call on students at the beginning of the class to pray. And after they would finish praying, he would write on the board all of the theological errors of their prayers. And so you can imagine how intimidating it was for the students to pray. Uh, One very clever student, when he was called upon to pray, as I was told, uh, he bowed his head and he began and said, Our Father, who art in heaven... And he prayed the Lord's Prayer. Very clever, very astute. And wisely, the professor that day had no criticism for that prayer. The Lord's Prayer, also called the Our Father, probably the prayer that has been prayed the most times in all of the history of the world. And it's the most well-known Christian prayer, and rightly so, because Jesus said, when you pray... Pray like this. Now, it's profitable to use the Lord's Prayer as a prayer, as a read prayer, as a memorized prayer, so long as we aren't doing it the way he said here, by repeating over and over to heap up words to try to get God's attention. We looked at that last week. But it's profitable to pray the Lord's Prayer, and that's one of the reasons we do it here, because we are joining our voices with the voices of Christians around the globe and also throughout 2,000 years of history. But it's also profitable to see the Lord's Prayer as a pattern. Not just say these words, but here 
Here's some principles of prayer. Here's some categories of prayer. Here's how you can approach prayer. And so what we're going to do is look at it that way, as a a pattern for prayer, that it might instruct all of our prayers uh, and give us an outline uh, for praying to our Father. Now, it's set up this way. There is an initial address to God, and we'll look at that, our Father in Heaven. And then there are three petitions or three requests that have to do with God's glory. And then there are three requests that have to do with our needs. So it starts out, your, 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 and then it gets to our, our, our. And that's instructive even in in and of itself, isn't it? To begin by praying for God's glory and then to pray for our needs. Now this, this prayer is so common and so oft repeated that it ceases perhaps to be remarkable. But one of the most remarkable things about this prayer are the two words with which it starts. Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Say, our Father. That's astounding. Jesus got in trouble for calling God his own Father. They wanted to stone him because he had the audacity to call God his own Father. And then when his disciples come and say, Lord, teach us to pray, what does he say? This is how you should pray. Not only this is how I should pray, but this is how you should pray as well. You should say, our Father. And so what is Jesus giving to us here? He is giving to us the same intimacy of access to God as he himself enjoys. Our Father. Now, it's also interesting here that he uses the plural. He says, Our Father. He doesn't say, when you pray, say, My Father. He says, when you pray, say, Our Father. Now, if you look at verse 6, where it says, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. All of those yours there are singular. It's not clear in English, but it's clear in the original. They're singular. So he is teaching us to pray to my Father in secret. So he does teach that in verse 6. Intimacy, private prayer. God is my Father. And I pray to Him in secret, alone, solitary. But here in the Lord's Prayer, the pronouns are plural. And so put these two together. He's saying, yes, go into your closet. Go into your private room and pray, My Father. Pray to your Father who sees in secret. But in addition, pray with each other. Pray together as Christians. This is difficult for some cultures, especially ours. Our, how do we describe our, many of us as Western European descent It's hard for us to do corporate things because our society is built on individual or at least has gotten more and more that way. And so we're okay with verse 6. We get the idea of having my personal relationship with God. But when it comes to corporate prayer, we struggle. You know that I'm teaching this Bible study starting last week at this Haitian church. Well, the Bible study was from 7.30 to 8.30, And they had a prayer meeting going on that extended to 9 o'clock. And so I said, Sandy, let's go into the prayer meeting. We wanted to catch the end of it. And we went in, and we learned something about corporate prayer. Um, They are having what's called a Daniel fast. I've been away a while. 
I guess everybody else knows about this but me, but a Daniel fast is uh, fasting like Daniel did, 21 days, vegetables and water. So they're starting the year with these 21 days of a Daniel fast. But the interesting thing is during these 21 days, they have prayer meetings every day. They have one in the morning for a few hours for those who work in the afternoon. And then they have one at night for a few more hours for those who work earlier. And we came in on the tail end of the prayer meeting in the evening. And there were a number, I don't know, a few dozen people gathered praying fervently. When we walked in, they were praying out loud all at the same time, walking up and down the rows of the pews. And I wondered what was going on. And the pastor said, when I see them doing that, I know that they're walking up and down the pews praying that God would fill those pews with people. And our style of praying might not be the same as a Haitian church, but I thought, this is a little embarrassing. I'm going to go on Sunday and teach about prayer, when probably the best thing I could do is say, let's just all go to that church. And join with them, even if we don't understand Creole, let's join with them and see how the church prays together. And I had to ask myself, how would it go if I announced that we're going to start our year with a Daniel fast and 21 days of prayer meetings, morning and evening? I think we would struggle with that, and I would be one of the ones that struggles with that. But however our our culture might be, we're called on to pray Together. Now, this is a little embarrassing to admit, but we're trying to make a little step in that direction with our prayer team. And we're using technology to do it. Maybe that's typical of how we do things, but we're using technology because of our disparate lives. And we have a, an app and we can join together. And if you would like to join in that sort of corporate prayer, we'd love for that to happen. But we also need to move towards having sit down together, face to face prayer where we say, our Father, together. Now, we've only covered two words so far, but don't worry, we'll speed up a bit here. Um, He says, Our Father in heaven. Our Father, literally, Our Father, the One who is in the heavens. So we're saying which Father it is. It's the One who is in the heavens. And I want you to see the, the juxtaposition here of ideas. He says, Our Father, which is a very intimate term, a familiar term, a loving term. And then he says, which father? The one who is in the heavens, which is an exalted, awesome description of God. And so he's putting these two together very naturally. And he's saying God is our father and he's also the one who is exalted in the heavens, which encourages us in two ways. If he's our father, then we can have intimacy of access to him. And if he's the one that is in the heavens, then he is powerful enough to hear and answer our prayers. But also this combination dictates the kind of approach we need to have in prayer. How can we describe this this approach? Reverent intimacy, perhaps. Reverent intimacy. Reverent because He is in the heavens. He's exalted. He's over all. Intimacy because He's our Father. And this is different from, let's say, fearful dread and also casual flippancy. We need to avoid both of those because He's our Father, so we're intimate. And He is the one who is in the heavens, so we enter with a sense of awe and reverence. That's the introduction. That's the address to God. Now, the first three prayers, the first three requests are for God's glory, and we're in verses 9 and 10. And He says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. 
And this version has kept the, the King James, the ancient way, or ancient for us anyway, way of saying this. But this is a little odd for us. Hallowed. What is hallowed? It means holy, holy. Be your name. And what is the name of God? The name of God is God. Uh, it's to praise God. It's to set aside God as holy. It's to exalt Him. It's to recognize who He is. So this first request is a prayer that God would glorify Himself. This may sound a little unusual to pray that God would glorify Himself, but that's what God is about, glorifying Himself. And that may seem very unusual as well, because He's the only being in existence for whom self-glorification is entirely appropriate. In fact, for Him to do anything less than glorify Himself would be unworthy of God. Because God cannot exist for anything less than the highest purpose for which all things exist. And that is for God's glory. He exists for His own glory and He, and he uh, asks us, and He creates all things and does all things for His own glory as well. Uh, Jesus prayed in John chapter 12, um, verse 28, He said this, Father, glorify Your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So he prayed, Jesus prayed, God glorify your name, and God said, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm about. I'm about glorifying my own name. So, how do we start? We start by saying, God, your glory is the highest thing. It's the thing for which you exist, and it's the thing for which we exist. Glorify your name. Now, another thing we need to understand about God's self-glorification is this. That is, um, it's different from our self-glorification. Because if I glorify myself, I'm not benefiting you. I'm benefiting me. I'm probably taking something from you to try to glorify myself. I'm probably standing on top of you to try to lift myself up. But for God, it's different. When God glorifies Himself, that's the best thing for us. That's the most beneficial thing for us. And we will see this in the rest of this prayer. The second request is in verse 10. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Now, let's think about God's kingdom. And God's kingdom comes, uh, we can say, in four stages. The Old Testament... Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. And we're going to look at verses in Matthew because Matthew talks about the kingdom more than any of the, of the Gospels. And we can see that the Old Testament was kingdom prologue. Matthew chapter 11, verse 11 says, Truly I say to you, among those born of woman, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What's the, what's the idea here? The idea here is that John was the, the last one. The last one of the Old Testament times. And Jesus says, now what's starting? The kingdom. And so, what's the Old Testament? Kingdom prologue. Kingdom preparation. And we go to Matthew chapter 12, verse 28. We find that when did the kingdom come? When was the kingdom inaugurated? It was inaugurated when the king came. It was inaugurated when Jesus came. Matthew chapter 12, verse 28 says, Jesus is saying this, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He says, look at my ministry. Look at what I'm doing. What's this say to you? It says, the kingdom has come. And then we have kingdom growth. 
Matthew also has in Matthew a number of these kingdom parables. Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the mustard seed, it's about kingdom growth. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Then he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. That's the period in which we are now. We're in the period of the kingdom growing and filling the whole world. But there's one other stage to the kingdom, and that's completion. Uh, If you look at Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 and following, it says this. It says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come you who are blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So there's the completion of the kingdom when Jesus returns. So what do we have? Old Testament is what? Kingdom prologue. And then we have the inauguration of the kingdom when Jesus comes. Then we have this period in which we live, the time of the growth of the kingdom, and then when Christ comes again, we have the completion. The kingdom has come. So, what does this prayer mean? Thy kingdom come. Your kingdom come. For what are we praying? Well, the Old Testament's already passed, right? Jesus has already come the first time. We're in the growth stage. And what is still to come? The completion. So what are we praying when we pray Your kingdom come? We are praying that the Gospel would go out into all the world. That the Gospel would grow and thrive and reach all the nations so that the end may come. Because these two things are linked together. One more verse from Matthew. Jesus said this in Matthew 24, 14. He said, and when this gospel of the kingdom, I'm sorry, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when will the end come? When will the kingdom be consummated when the gospel has gone out into all the world? So what is this prayer? This prayer, thy kingdom come, your kingdom come. It's a missionary prayer. It's reminding us of why we are here as Christians to take the gospel to the end of the world. Any of you heard of John Piper, a pastor? He's now retired, but still writes, seems to write about a book a week. Um, amazingly prolific, but he's had an amazing ministry. But John Piper is not one f- known for mincing words. So prepare yourselves. He gave this, this uh, talk in 1988. You'll see the, the reference to the Persian Gulf and Reagan Gorbachev. Uh, before some of you all were born, but some of us remember what this was about. But he, he's talking about... This talk is called Prayer, the Work of Missions. And I want to read a little bit about this because he's, he's reminding us why we have prayer. And he's reminding us of the kingdom mentality that we need to have. He says, we must talk about war because life is war. And it is utterly impossible for people to know what prayer really is unless they know that we are in war. And until they know that the stakes of the war are infinitely higher than the stakes in the Persian Gulf or in the Reagan-Gorbachev consultations. We are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against 
the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, we take the whole armor of God. In other words, life is war. But most people do not believe this in their heart. Most people show their by their priorities and their casual approach to spiritual things that they believe we are in peacetime, not wartime. In wartime, some of you lived to see this. I didn't see this in World War II. Some of you did. In wartime, the newspapers carry headlines about how the troops are doing. In wartime, families talk about the sons and daughters on the front lines and write to them and pray for them with heart-wrenching concern for their safety. In wartime, we are on the alert. We are armed. We are vigilant. In wartime, we spend money differently. There is austerity, not for its own sake, but because there are more strategic ways to spend money than on new tires at home. The war effort touches everybody. We all cut back. The luxury liner becomes the troop carrier. Very few people think that we are now in a war greater than World War II and greater than any imaginable nuclear World War III, or that Satan is much worse enemy than communism or militant Islam, or that the conflict is not restricted to any one global theater, but in every town, every city of the world, or that the casualties do not merely lose an arm or an eye or an earthly life, but lose everything, even their own soul, and enter a hell of everlasting torment. Until people believe this, they will not pray as they ought. They will not even know what prayer is. So I do not tire of saying to our church the number one reason why prayer malfunctions in the hands of of believers is that they try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. Until you believe that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. It is as though the field commander, Jesus, called in the troops, gave them a crucial command, go and bear fruit, handed each of them a personal transmitter, coded to the frequency of the general's headquarters, and said, Comrades, the general has a mission for you. He aims to see it accomplished. And to that end, he has authorized me to give each of you personal access to him through these transmitters. If you stay true to his mission and seek his victory first, he will always be as close as your transmitter to give you tactical advice and to send in air cover when you or your comrades need it. But what have millions of Christians done? They've stopped believing that we're at war. No urgency, no watching, no vigilance, no strategic planning, just easy peacetime and prosperity. And what did they do with the walkie-talkie? They tried to rig it up as an intercom in their cushy houses and cabins and boats or cars, not to call in firepower for conflict with a mortal enemy, but to ask the maid to bring another pillow to the den. That's what prayer is about. It's the work of missions, and we're at war. That's why it starts out saying, Your kingdom come. Then he says, the third request is related. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is God's will done in heaven? Happily, perfectly, promptly, joyfully, immediately. That's how God's will is done in heaven. And we're praying here that God's will would be done that way on earth. But we need to be careful as we pray this. We might be thinking, may God's will be done on earth. But really what we're praying is, may I do your revealed will in your word 
as promptly as the angels do it in heaven. Those are the first three requests. Jesus said, when you pray, pray this way. Your name be hallowed. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And then we get to our needs. Now we get to our needs. And in this fourth request, we ask in verse 11, for our basic needs to be met. Give us this day our daily bread. In our abundance, this prayer makes little sense. I don't know if there's anyone here who has seriously been worried about what to eat tomorrow. Maybe there's some people here that really have been seriously worried. But even in the tightest times that we have had as a family and as a couple, even in the tightest times, the scarcest times, I really wasn't worried about what I was going to eat tomorrow. I was worried about other things, being able to pay this bill or that, but I was never worried about being able to eat. But many Christians around the world, throughout history, have had to pray like this with faith because they really didn't know where their daily bread was coming from. And I I think our abundance makes it difficult for us to understand what it looks like to depend on God day by day for the meeting of our needs. We had a number of different congregations in Guadalajara associated with our our college of churches. Uh, We had, in the mother church where I was the pastor, we had an English-speaking congregation. These were retirees or they were executives of multinational corporations, quite well-to-do for the most part. And then we had the Spanish-speaking congregation. There was quite a, a range there, socioeconomically, but, but we, had, we had, it was solidly middle class at least, and some people a lot more comfortable and others not so. And then we had our first daughter church, a mission church, in an ancient town next to our community. And in that town, the people were mostly day laborers. And so they would work a day and they would get their wages, or they would work a week and get their, their wages for the week. And then after the, the work was up, then they would look for more work. And so economically, they weren't as comfortable. And it was interesting to see how difficult it was to sustain a prayer meeting in our church, in the mother church. We would try to have a weekly prayer meeting, and maybe one or two would show up from the English congregation. And then a handful would show up from the, the middle class uh, Spanish-speaking congregation. And then our brothers and sisters, just a mile away in that town, they had a weekly prayer meeting where about half the church would show up because they knew what it was like to say, give us this day our daily bread. And then periodically they would have 24 hours of prayer where they would take turns in going to this prayer room and they would pray for 24 hours. It's hard for us to understand prayer sometimes because of our abundance. Yes, we have needs, Maybe our need for food has been met, but we either have, have basic needs. We have basic needs for health. We have basic need for provisions of life. But even so, it's easy to confuse our needs and our wants, isn't it? And this prayer is focused on needs. And if we have our daily needs, needs met, then what? Well, we can help others to have their daily need, needs met. The fifth request, we ask for forgiveness of our sins. And if the request for daily bread is daily, constantly. The request for forgiveness is also constant. Why is that? Because we keep sinning. Because we keep sinning. That's why this prayer is included. We need to eat constantly and we need to be forgiven constantly. And here we ask God to forgive us constantly for our debts. Even as we 
forgive those who have sinned against us. We saw this last week in verses 14 and 15 where he spelled this out, that as we are praying for forgiveness of our debts, we are also committing ourselves to forgive those who commit sins against us. The sixth request, we ask for God's deliverance from temptation We ask for God's deliverance from evil. Verse 13, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You may know that this word evil, it has the definite article. It says, uh, deliver us from the evil. And so some people translate it, the evil one. It might be personal, thinking about the enemy. Or it may just be uh, evil in general. It amounts to the same thing. Also, the word temptation can mean testing. Or it can mean temptation, but I think temptation is the right translation here because God never promises to deliver us from testing. On the contrary, He promises to take us through testing, and so uh, it wouldn't make sense that we would be taught to be delivered from testing, but yes, to be delivered from temptation, the result of which is falling into it, which would be falling into evil. Now, this um, request, we recognize two things. We recognize that sin is the greatest threat to our well-being. Sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we think that financial calamity might be the greatest threat. Sometimes we think that uh, physical sickness might be the greatest threat. Sometimes we think that nuclear war might be the greatest threat. Sometimes we think a a government shutdown might be the greatest threat to our well-being. No, the greatest threat to our well-being is sin. And here we're saying, God, deliver me from my greatest enemy. Deliver me from that which will do most damage to myself and to those I love. And we recognize one other thing as well. We recognize that we are weak and dependent on God for deliverance from sin. That we can't do this ourselves. That we need Him to deliver us from temptation, to deliver us from evil. That's why prayer is so fitting for Christians. Because what do we do in prayer? We live out that posture. And that posture is the great, the basic Christian posture. What's the basic Christian posture before God? Weak and dependent. And then what do we do in prayer? We admit that. We live it out. We speak it. That we are weak and dependent. And that's also why prayer is so hard, isn't it? Because we don't like to be weak and dependent. We don't like to admit that we're weak and dependent. And so we struggle with prayer. But Jesus came precisely for the weak. Paul says it this way. He says, when we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, although maybe, perhaps, for a good person, someone might dare to die. But God demonstrates His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't die for the powerful. He died for the weak. Christ didn't die for the righteous. He died for the unrighteous. Christ didn't die for the godly. He died for the ungodly. Christ didn't die for those who are self-sufficient. He died for those who are dependent. And that's why salvation has to be by faith in Christ and no other way. And that's why prayer makes sense for Christians. Because what do we do in prayer? We live out that faith that says, God, I can't, but you can. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to direct ourselves to you and say those words. And we pray that they would be on our lips 
constantly, my Father, our Father. That we would pray individually, that we would pray corporately. That we would understand that we're in war, kingdom warfare. And that we would use that wartime walkie-talkie that you've given us and not try to rig it up as a, an intercom only for our own pleasures. Oh God, we pray that we would understand prayer, that we would resort to you for the firepower that we need to live in this life that is war, that we might see your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in our lives and throughout the globe. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.